what's working on purpose anyway? Each week we ponder the answer to this question. People ache for meaning and purpose at work, to contribute their talents passionately, and know their lives really matter. They crave being part of an organization that inspires them and helps them grow into realizing their highest potential. Business can be such a force for good in the world, elevating humanity. In our program, we provide guidance and inspiration to help usher in this world we all want. Working on Purpose. Now, here is your host, Dr. Elise Cortez. Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to Working on Purpose. I'm Dr. Elise Cortez, joining you live from Dallas, where it's hot here in the middle of summer. And I welcome you back for another thought-provoking conversation. As you know, this, this show is really designed to be a thought leadership series that elevates and inspires you with subject matter experts and authors and business leaders from across the globe. Today with us, we have Danny Gutnick, who is the CEO of a company called Pathways, and he is the author of this book, which is called uh, Meaning at Work and Its Hidden Language. Uh, we'll be talking about what some of the contents in this book, how they how they map over to both of our respective worlds around culture, meaning, and leadership, and learn about how it is he got into this, this, this inquiry here. I want you to know that I actually stalked this man for you. I brought him here because I found him on LinkedIn, and when I saw what he was doing, I, I reached out to him and I said, you've got to come on my show. And he said, yes. So, Danny, welcome to Working on Purpose. Thanks, Elise. Happy to be here. It's so great to have you, and uh, as you know, I'm prone to do because I am very much not even a closet geek. I'm just a geek, period. I read your beautiful book cover to cover. Listeners, if you haven't picked this thing up, it is a fantastic read. It's just you're going to be smarter by by the time you finish the first chapter. So um, what I'm going to be doing as we talk here, Danny, is I, I've prepared various notes that I want to make sure and reference. So even though we're on video, I want to be able to reference them. So let's rock and roll. You ready? Sounds good. Let's go. Okay. Yeah. All right. So the first thing is, I, if you would, you have a very fascinating and expansive life and career, and I think it would be useful for our listeners and viewers to hear the path of really how it is that you came to study meaning and why it's so important to you. You know, I, I mean, I didn't actually know initially that I was studying meaning. I think that that's pretty much a path that a lot of people take in life is you don't know what you're onto until you're onto it. Um, but I, but I grew up, I grew up in the Midwest, a very traditional. set of values. And I didn't like the answers that I got. And they just they just weren't satisfactory to me. And so I had this question a little bit about what's life about. Um, And then I had another interest, which was entrepreneurship. I was just a natural entrepreneur, I'd I'd go hustle, sell tuxedo fish to the pet store and, you know, (laughs) things like that. And then and then the other piece was um, music. Um, I, I, you know, and I really leaned towards music that had compelling messages in it that made me stop and think. And that, that was really the, the start of it. And so what happened was over time, I just kept feeding these interests. Um, I, I went out into the world like everybody else does and says, okay, I think I've got to go get a job. I think I've got to go pay the bills and, you know, I'll go on that journey. But um, I noticed that that at the time I thought, well, these, these are never really going to match up. And I had read this book, um, called Frogs into Princes, and it was it was kind of the start of the NLP revolution. Okay, sure. And and while I'm not a huge fan of NLP, I, some of the things that really jumped out to me were um, they talked about models, therapeutic models first, and I thought, oh, therapeutic models. And so they also said we make models to to understand the world around us, and that really resonated with me. And so. What I started to learn about models, I dove in a little bit about models and I, and I learned, well, you know what? I think it might be interesting for me if instead of kind of searching for the truth of life, 
what's useful in these models? Mm -hmm. So I went on a journey of, of really kind of exploring models. And it turns out that like a song is a model. It's a meaning model, right? Somebody's, somebody's purporting or, or giving you some sort of sense of meaning about how they're interpreting the song and the vibe and the, the way that they feel about it and the way that they feel at the moment and their understanding of themselves and the world about them. And so it's, it's, it's that, that form of art. And so that, you know, then the music started to tie in a little bit to that. And uh, it took a long time until I got into recruiting until I really understood that maybe, maybe this path of, hmm, what's, what's the world about and work we spend 57.5% of our adult lives working. Is that what so it is? I, well? Yeah. So then I started thinking, well, if you're there most of the time, it makes sense that maybe this whole idea of being the best version of yourself should and could start there. So that's, that's how I stumbled onto it. And then, and then over the years of working at recruiting, you know, I, I started to redevise the interview because in recruiting, I just, I would get frustrated I had about 40 recruiters, recruiters working for me at once, and I would get incredibly frustrated with the fact that um, I'd ask them about a candidate that was applying for a job, and they'd, they, I'd be like, no, 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 those are your motives. That they can't possibly be the candidates. <laughs> so, so I started to tinker with the interview, and once we tinkered with the interview, it, it blossomed. It just opened up into this, whoa, like look at how all these motives work. And so initially, I thought I was on to this language of motive, motive versus the language of business. And then I, I met a, a, a model maker. So Mr. Model User that was out in, out in the world making, you know, using all these models and trying to see what works and what was useful. I, I meet this model user and the, or maker and, and, and the model maker, his name was Bajoy Goswami out of Austin, Texas, went to Stanford, became a, a, a real important collaborator for me in the sense that um, we started to have this dialogue about um, human existence and, and models and how this works. And it was like, oh, lo and behold, we all have models for the different contexts of life that we partake in or we engage in. And so I have a model for, I have a relationship with the cosmos. You know, some might call it a spiritual journey. And then that's a model, right? It's how I understand and, and, and wake up in the world. And, and so... Um, I've got a model for walking down the street. And oh, by the way, I've spent, spent 10 years now looking at, gosh, people that have, uh, that are on a work journey, they have a model for that. Mm -hmm. And, and what is that model? Well, it's how we, it's our meaning. Um, it's not just something that we say about ourselves. It's something that we're willing to wake up and do and what we care enough about in life to actually go do it. Oh my gosh! So that's, I how I that's how I stumbled into it. <laughs> I, I got to comment on a couple things, Danny, and for our listeners, yeah. so that I like to be able to teach back some of the things I hear for our listeners. First, for those of you who don't know what NLP is, it stands for Neuro Linguistic Pro Programming. So, if you don't know what that what is, that's what he was referring to. Second, what I want to emphasize that Danny just shared with us is the importance of really leaning in when something calls your attention to lean into it, to pay attention to it, it's trying to tell you something, go with it. Put some energy into that. By the way, that's called passion. When you give something of yourself, it's called passion. So I want to want to applaud that you did that, Danny, and then help make sure our listeners heard that for themselves. Um, and three, what you said about that everything is a model. How interesting is that? Because one of the things I wanted you to do is define meaning for us as you define it. So how do you define define meaning? It's it's the models by which a being parses its existence. So oh, in other that's words, better than I thought you were going to say. <laughs> So, so in other words, you know, how do we wake up? Um, when we wake up, how do we interpret the world? How do we show up? Um, and it turns out meaning models, the models 
by which we parse our existence are pretty complex. You know, they've got images, they've got feelings, and actually they have a narrative. So they have snippets of things that we tell ourselves about certain situations or certain people or, or ourselves and, and the narratives by which we understand the world around us. Well, so guess what? You know, I, I'm due to send my, my book that's coming out later this year to my publisher this, this week for its third go-round, and I have a chapter on meaning. I'm going to have to quote you on that. That is uh, one of the most fresh ways I've ever heard anybody describe meaning that I've ever heard, Danny. Thank you. Gorgeous. Um, all right, so this is now we're going to get really into the meat. So listeners and viewers, what we're going to get into here is really we're going to open the hood here and talk about some of the really cool concepts that Danny has present in his book. So I'm going to refer to some of my notes here. So Danny, at one point in your book, you, you write, and I quote, meaning isn't just an abstract idea, it actually makes us healthier. And then you distinguish that happiness we get from following a path we believe to be meaningful. It's known, it's known as eudaimonic, however you say that, happiness. But happiness from seeking rewards or pleasure is called hedonic happiness. Fascinating to me that you would distinguish those two in a book about meaning. Why? Well, so the UCLA and um, those are terms used by UCLA and by North Carolina who studied happiness. Mm-hmm. And I actually think that, that they've misqualified uh, eudonic um, because I don't think eudonic is happiness. I think it's that sense of care that you have that you put into things. And so mm-hmm. people that pursue hedonic happiness. So in other words, what can I do this next moment to be happy? And I think I think our culture is rife with that right now, which is what's the next pill I can take? What's the next you know, uh, dopamine jolt, jolt that I can get out of a tweet or <laughs> whatever that is, right? And so the eudonic is is actually that thing of, you know, if you have kids, it's waking up in the middle of the night to feed them. And there's something that may, might be uncomfortable about that, but there's also something, or frustrating, but there's also something that in terms of a sense of care, you get a fulfillment out of. And that also happens at work, right? And, um, and so a lot of people uh, struggle with, with finding that eudonic drive for work, which is which is actually what meaning you're touching on meaning now, and and so there's a biological there's a biological uh, phenomenon that happens to you when you actually start to steward your own system of meaning. Mm. Okay, now you're you're stepping into some territory that I want to make sure our listeners get as well. You're talking, you're using the word fulfillment, and you know this because we are in the same space as me. But I, I bet a lot, a lot of our listeners don't know this that today we're focused on helping people to, to discover and discern fulfillment in their work. Um, whereas in, in the past, we used to talk about employee engagement. There's, that's still out there, but now really the more forward thinking term is fulfillment. And so you're presencing that with what you're just saying. And that gets me to the next thing I want to talk about, which I think is just so crisp and so amazing. You, you say that, um, quote, when, when the way we're living doesn't align with what we, can, we consider important, it conflicts with our sense of self. That's what happens with disengagement. Would you say a little bit more about that? And I'm going to give an illustration from my own life as well. Yeah, I think I'm going to circle, circle. I'll circle back around to this set of, so picture this, okay? Let's say that the model, have you ever seen inside the movie Inside Out? It's an animated show for for children. No, no, I haven't. Okay, so they, they basically have life experiences built into context, which are like a little orb. And so if you think about that orb as maybe a magnetized ball, and so think about that in terms of your meaning model, if you can make that mental connection. And so if you just start to think that we have all of these meaning models for a lot of different contexts in our life, and all of those meaning models make up ourself. And so what happens is, is that if, if your models outsource to an authority-based construct, so in other words, 
if you if you've got this idea of leadership that somebody else defined and it's not your idea of leadership you're, you're constantly trying to live up into that model that isn't actually yours your authentic model and so what happens is is these these little polarities so for example i might be going oh i need to you know, early in life i need to go get get the money right i got to go do things and make the money oh no no that's not it i want to go do it for the love Right. right. And so then then you're in this duality and it's polarized. So you start doing it for love and then you're like, oh, maybe the money thing wasn't so bad. <laughs> right. And you haven't you haven't actually resolved that duality within yourself. So when I'm talking about a polarity. So if you think about disconnection, what happens is, is that you've got if you haven't attended to your meaning or your kind of what you're doing in life and kind of made your models conscious. Carl Jung has a great quote. He says, if you don't make the unconscious conscious, it will rule your life as fate. So yes. you think that you're responding to things, but but the issue is, is that you actually have these issues with polarity and conflicts internally that you haven't kind of pulled out into separate containers and examined them and decided, you know, does that work for me? And what, what resonates with me and what doesn't? And and started to curate and, and steward your meaning that way. I, I got so much insight into that into my own life, Danny, when you said that. I've known this before, but you gave me another way, another model through which to understand it with what you just offered there. And I'll share it with the listeners and the viewers. And that is that there was a period of time in about, I'd say, 2000, late, no, I'd say most of 2015, where I had come to a place in my life where I'd done my second round of meaning and work research. I was publishing. I was speaking on the topic. And I knew I wanted to do so much more with it. And I, I sort of put myself in this container box. I was married at the time and I felt like if I just didn't think I was I could go pursue those things and I hated myself for not pursuing those things and the life that came with it. And I I knew that I wasn't leading to my potential and giving of myself what I wanted to give to the world and it was miserable. So definitely my view of myself did not fit with what I was doing. And it wasn't until um I went through my divorce process that the clearing came and I got a chance to step back into that zone and claim it. And I'm not telling listeners and viewers, please don't hear me that I'm saying that you can't claim meaning until you get divorced. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that for me, I could only access it until the paradigm changed in my life. You had to find a way to get clarity, I'm guessing, and I get did. your own clarity on things. I did. Yeah. I really did. And so I found so much of your book so helpful to be able to explain, oh, that's why that happened. That's why I did that. That's why I made that choice incredibly yeah. insightful Danny so 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 when you did that you actually started to go oh wow I like I'm actually seeing what I'm what I'm here to do what I yeah and that I was and and then I I knew what I was here to do and I because I wasn't doing it I wasn't obeying mm -hmm. it if well I hated myself for it so yes when I stepped out of my own I was like I've got no more no, no more excuses now I've I'm going for it and I did go for it so I've got so many things happening right now that I'm doing to express my purpose and it is amazing so with that, let us take our first break, shall we? I'm Elise Cortez, your host. We've been here with Danny Gutnick. He is the author of Meaning at Work and its Hidden Hidden Language. He's also the CEO of Pathways. We've been talking a bit about how it is he got into this space. What? How did he find meaning and do something about it? After the break, we're going to talk more about how we can use it at work and also on ourselves. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Dr. Elise Cortez is a management consultant specializing in meaning and purpose. An inspirational speaker and author, she helps companies visioneer for greater purpose among stakeholders and develop purpose-inspired leadership and meaning-infused cultures that elevate fulfillment, performance, and commitment within the workforce. To learn more or to invite Elise to speak to your organization, please visit her at EliseCortez.com. Let's talk about how to get your employees working on purpose. 
This is Working on Purpose with Dr. Elise Cortez. To reach our program today or open a conversation with Elise, send an email to Elise, A-L-I-S-E, at EliseCortez.com. Now, back to Working on Purpose. Thanks for staying with us and welcome back to Working on Purpose. If you're just tuning in, my guest is Danny Gutnick. He is the author of this book, Meaning at Work and Its Hidden Language. He's also the CEO of Pathways, and we've been talking a bit about how he got into the space of what, what lured him into the meaning world, like, like it has me. We want to continue the conversation, and there's a couple of specific things that I want to call out in your book, Danny, to keep us really close to the reading, because there's so much great material here. So you say, you write, and I'm going to quote this just as it is and ask you to comment on it. So you say, the need to actualize is becoming a cultural phenomenon. Throughout history, there have been those who moved away from institutions and struggled to assume responsibility for their own meaning, tap the essence of who they are. They have used philosophy, psychiatry, psychology, yoga, and meditation. One by one, people are slipping off the chains, turning away from the cave wall, and crawling out into the sunlight to realize their true potentials for the first time. Why is this happening? What's causing, what's under this phenomenon? So, so uh, a couple of things are driving it. Um, one, we've, we've gotten to a point in particularly in roughly 20 countries where we've gotten so much scientific progress that uh, the returns are much smaller. We're not seeing these big boons in, say, science. Um, we've gotten all, about all the rights. We're the freest people that have ever lived in the history of the planet, right? There's still issues with it, but, but you know, we're the freest people that, that have ever lived. Three, we have more stuff. We're flourishing at a level that's insane compared to, you know, a hundred years ago when people used to make their own underwear and have to wear them every day. And, you know, and so it's, it's, uh, and so, so we don't have some of those immediate issues on hand. Um, and, and there's no putting the genie back in the bottle either. And so what's happening is, is that people are starting to ask themselves more fundamental questions. And, and then you get the rise of the internet. 20 years ago, and now what we're doing is we're getting a flood of back to the model thing of gurus and people offering advice and suggestions, and, and we're seeing that the world can wake up and you can actually express yourself in a lot of different ways that resonate more with us. And so I think that level of freedoms and that level of um, uh, human flourishing that, that that's existed uh, are working in concert to confront this major problem, which is ooh, the American dream might not mean what the American dream meant, you know, to where we all collectively have to agree on what an American dream is. Now it's your American dream. Um, you know, uh, I think, I think you know, a little bit back to Young, one of the things that he mentioned in one of his books was scientific industrial political man suffers from the shift of, of really of meaning from the institution to the individual. And so this is this is going to be a long journey for people. I don't think that this is a, a fast fad. It's it's going to be a journey that I think people are going to take. It's going to take maybe hundreds of years for people to figure out what self-actualization and individuation are and how they can do it for themselves. Mm-hmm. And, and to that end, that's the next question I wanted to ask you, Danny. I don't think I've ever, if I ever read the term or saw the term individuation, it didn't stick with me. So if you would, it's... And you can also talk about the hero's journey, and those are extremely compelling to me. So first, I think if you would, for our listeners and viewers, what is individuating and how can we activate it for ourselves? Yeah, so in, individuation is a term that, that actually Carl Jung did use, and I, I thought it was a little better than self-actualization. 
Mm-hmm. Just in this perspective that, that um, one of the things that he studied was what happens to a healthy psychological human being and what is that healthy relationship that it has to everything else in its environment. And he called that individuation. And, and that happens when somebody attends to their inner world enough to differentiate themselves from, say, cultural programs that we've inherited or that we've we've chosen. So, for example, you might grow up Catholic and then oh, I'm going to try Buddhism now. And so that's a switch. You're actually taking a, mo- a model and you're going, oh, I'm, I'm casting off this Catholicism. And now and you decide you can use model. But but individuation is when you go, OK, wait, I'm not actually going to seek the world for my answers. I'm going to go inside and find out how I want to evolve and curate my own my own journey mm. and that that so that's the different differentiated individual that that you have with individuation mm-hmm. and so so what i guess for our listeners to be able and our viewers to be able to have access to that then is it takes going inward so you have to be you have to be quiet and listen for the inner voice and do things that allow you to well meditate and as you say the yoga and all those things that i've been doing too and other suggestions um, you know, the, my biggest suggestion on doing it is actually um, uh, the thing that I think I've learned most through, through not only writing the book and but but experiencing this stuff is there's a lot of people that took a long time to actually understand this stuff. And one of the things that myself and and actually my collaborator Bajoy wanted to do was provide a set of models for people to use um, that that kind of cut the curve off of you know not skip steps but cut the curve off of experimentation, mm-hmm. right? And so, so yeah, and so this, this approach of, say, using lenses and then in, in, as models to kind of view yourself from a different perspective, and then slowly after you, you use the lens, you start to embed the model, and now you actually have a hammer, right? Mm-hmm. And so, um, and you have different hammers. Maslow talked about the golden hammer, where, you know, if you, if you think you have a hammer, you treat everything else as a nail, Right. Um, you, you know, right. And so it's like, it's like, well, you can't use capitalism in science. It's not going to work. And, um, you know, they can go together and work together, but you know, so th- th- that's what I'm talking about by, by once you actually start to understand the categories and then, and then really dive in and, and deal with the content of your model and make it yours. That's, that's the path. And so, um, like I went through all of those things that I talked about in the book and I, you know, I no longer do yoga or any of those things. Every day is yoga. Every day is a, is a meditation. Every, everything that I do is, is just, it, it kind of connects to the next thing. And um, there's really no separation, but, um, but, I get but, it, that. but it's, yeah. Yeah. I get that. Okay. So we've been talking about, about your models and such more on an individual basis. Now I want to move into more of the work realm and teams. And this next thing that we're going to talk about is just awesome to get us going on that direction. So again, I'm going to quote from your book. You say, before self-actualization, people often used to shore up an identity through money, status, belonging, things they must get from other people. Self-actualizing people have gotten to a place where they see that such things have limited value. Instead, they focus not on how their peers see them, but on what they can produce or create that they consider worth pursuing. For self-actualizing people, work is play. They enjoy the opportunity to test themselves and grow, to produce something better today than there was yesterday. They focus on the work themselves, guilty as charged. Say more about this delicious concept. Yeah, I mean, work is play in terms of, I I think all of 
for me, all of work is fulfilling and it wasn't always that way. Even, even the stuff that I don't want to do. I mean, let, make no doubt about it. There's challenges and there's annoyances and there's all of those things that come along with, with normal work. But I, I think that for, you know, to, to bring it back to the recruiting lens and to make it maybe an easy analogy, if I'm hiring somebody, the person that I want to hire is somebody who wants to see the, 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 wants to see something done in the universe or in the world that that sh- that it shares meaning with say pathways and because i know that if that person wants to see that done in the world for themselves and and then they see pathways as a vehicle to help go do that that's that's the alignment or that's that that's really the the, the ultimate marriage now it can't happen that way because um you have to do a certain amount of work on your journey to actually de- de- really determine what you want to go see done in the world, right? And so that's the that, that that's probably the crux of of the best way that I can explain how to how to view that. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, you might know, might recall that from our first conversation when I first reached out to you that I have been a meeting and work and identity researcher for years, and I started that with my PhD, and then I did a postdoc, so I found 15 modes of engagement, and they looked at the way people experience meaning, the level at which people experience meaning, and also how they themselves connected their identity with and through their work, and so one of the modes that I found was living your purpose, um, which is what I'm doing today. There's That's the number, number second mm-hmm. of, of, of them. There was also one that I called self-actualizing, and it was where they people intentionally use their work, like you're talking about with Pathways, as a vehicle to realize their potential and their their and cultivate their competencies. So um, I was really I people say to me all the time, "Wow, you work so much." Well, actually, I'm this is all threaded for me. This work is an expression of who I am, and it goes with me everywhere. So. Yeah, I'm working at the grocery store when I'm checking out, not because I'm saying, hey, do you want to work with me? But it's just it's just my being, right? Um, so it's inseparable for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. You, you, you're, you're taking things from every part of your existence and, and you're, you're plugging it back in as maybe some of it works as a metaphor, um, you know, into your work. And some of it's a learning lesson uh, that can be applied to, to what you're doing. So it's, it's all weaves that way doesn't it? it it does and then then i you know like there's a million conversations i could share with you but i want to stay on topic but yeah and it's just i it's it's one of those kind of things where um every everything that i end up doing is an expression of who i am and it just happens that i i've found and, and i've created work that lets me do that in service of a higher a higher calling and what's needed in the world and I, it's been a, a long hard journey as you know same thing for you but so worth it so worth it i'm so glad i did it um and speaking of that, now what we're kind of getting to here is what you alluded to earlier in the program before the first break, and that was this idea of uniqueness. And I had the, the pleasure of having Marcus Buckingham on my show a few months ago. I've followed that man for more than a decade. He spent 25 years at the Gallup organization, and he helped to steward the whole strengths movement. And then he went off on his own. He's done some other some other bits of consulting and assessments now. But he and I talked about his current book out that's called Nine Lies About Work. And one of the things that he talks about is the importance of organizations of embracing the uniqueness of each person inside their organization, finding a way to really call out what's special about them, letting them bring that specialness. And you write in your book, 
Uniqueness, however, is seen as an anathema to efficiency, so organizations mute it, resulting in cultures that reward homogeneity. Aiming for standardization and scale may seem to make it easier to manage people, but it makes you more vulnerable to competition based on price or value, and more importantly, it becomes more difficult for employees and eventually customers to make an essential connection to the organization. Say more about this fascinating, awesome topic. Yeah, so so really uncovering your own, going on your own meaning journey, which is the journey to uniqueness. I think that that's an individual thing that you have to do. Um, there's, there's definitely studies that show that, that um, when, you, when you start to do that, you start to understand that you don't bring everything to the table and you can't solve everything. And so you seek out differences in other people to be able to collaborate with them and, and do well. And that's, that's what really makes great organizations tick. If you, if you look at studies around teams, it's mm-hmm. when you can see the differences and appreciate the differences in others is, w- is when teams really start to do well, when you go, oh, that's, that's Elisa's, you know, neck of the woods, that's Danny's neck of the woods, they, you know, or, and, and really kind of more inquiring about that. So that's, that's one. And then I, and then, and then, you know, I think there's this other bit about, um, there's probably still, well, not probably, there's a big, I think people get overwhelmed when even leaders, when they don't have their own sense of purpose, um, to where they just want, let's, let me get the job done. I don't have time for that. Right. And if you haven't done that own, if you haven't taken your own journey, you kind of lose perspective on what's really important. And it's, it's people, you know, organizations are living beings. And the problem is, is they can't speak for themselves. They can't act for themselves. They need humans to do it. And so the, the beauty of, of, you know, hiring people that are say on the, on the path of the journey of trying to go, hey, I need to steward my own meeting. Now they plug in and they, they start asking the question, what does the company need instead of what's my parochial relationship with the company? Why doesn't the company give me meaning? Why do, well, the company can't give you meaning, right? You have to do your own. And I appreciate that you, and I align with you very much, that meaning and and fulfillment is really up to each of us individuals. It's not up to the manager. It's not up to, to the leader. I love how you use the word steward. So that's I'm completely with you, and it's and it's empowering for the individual. I want the individual to feel empowered. This is you can do this. It takes a little bit of work, but you can do it. And on that note, let's grab our last break. I'm Elise Cortez with Working on Purpose. We've been on the air with Danny Gutnick. He is the author of Meaning at Work and Its Hidden Language. We've been talking more about how this these these concepts inform our experience of work and can improve it. After the break, we're going to get a little bit deeper into leadership and culture. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Dr. Elise Cortez is a management consultant specializing in meaning and purpose. An inspirational speaker and author, she helps companies visioneer for greater purpose among stakeholders and develop purpose-inspired leadership and meaning-infused cultures that elevate fulfillment, performance, and commitment within the workforce. To learn more or to invite Elise to speak to your organization, please visit her at EliseCortez.com. Let's talk about how to get your employees working on purpose. This is Working on Purpose with Dr. Elise Cortez. To reach our program today or open a conversation with Elise, send an email to Elise, A-L-I-S-E, at EliseCortez.com. Now, back to Working on Purpose. Thanks for staying with us and welcome back to Working on Purpose. It's great to have you. I'm your host, Elise Cortez. We've been on the air with Danny Gutnick. He is the CEO of a company called Pathways, and he's the author of this book, Meaning at Work in Its Hidden Language. 
So, Danny, for this next bit here, I want to take us through. There's several more things I want to hit from the work and leadership vantage point that what you call in the book is just so yummy. So let's keep going here. The first thing that I want to share with our listeners and viewers that I thought was profound, and again, I didn't know this, is you, you teach us that meaning is registered in the limbic brain. So let me just read this here, too, because it gives us such great direct access into this idea. So you say, people know the experience of meaning of their limbic brains being triggered when they have a difficult time tying it to the task of their work. They do know, they do know, however, what it is not. And despite the fact that many organizations have well-articulated missions and visions, they don't trigger the employee's limbic brains if they don't inspire eudaimic happiness. They're missing the whole goal, to tap into the wellspring of commitment, creativity, and resourcefulness that meaningful work elicits. So I, my, my, my question to you is, how are better performing leaders and companies tapping into the limbic brains of their employees? How are they doing this? Well, I think it starts by, by um, tapping into your own system of meaning. And uh, I, 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 don't, I can't remember who published the article, but there was an article recently on trust and how it's fostered within an organization. And one of the things they pointed out was that um, authenticity, right? Um, just authenticity, uh, openness to, to, to employees and actually understanding who you are as a leader was super important to building trust. The, the limbic brain is, is, is just simple. It's, it's, it's epinephrine, right? And so what happens is, is when epinephrine hits, your heart muscles relax. Your face relaxes a little bit. You start to feel a little bit more at ease. And, and so that's, that's what's happening when you actually have situations of trust and connection. And so, you know, one of the things that I write in my book, which is about essence mining, is that it's a structure to actually, you know, not only understand somebody else's journey and the strengths that they bring with, you on, with them on their journey and how those go together, but it's also a, a, a methodology on how to examine yourself and through the words that you say and hence, you know, hidden language. And so those connections. So, for example, when you're talking to me or I'm talking to you, there's something particular that's interesting about video is you, you have something called prosody. And I so love that. Our, I it, that term. That was so cool. Say it again. <laughs> prosody. prosody. And so what's happening, what's happening is, is like when we're looking at each other and we're connecting, even though we're listening to what each other has to say, or maybe we're thinking about what we have to say next, our, our, our brains are picking up thousands of other cues, facial things, you know, small little, little gestures and things like that. And, and that's actually kind of our, what people call a BS antenna, right? <laughs> so, so that, so that'll tie that back a little bit to, to, to limbic resonance. If, if your BS antenna is going off, your fear projectors in your little brain are going off and you're starting to distance, you're starting to look for differences and cues in those differences and you're starting to say, oh, this is, there's something off here, right? And so to foster that, you really, to, to, to really tap limbic resonance in an organization, you have to be on the journey of your, yourself too. You have to really get clear with yourself about who you are and what you're here to do and, and what you care about and, and, and you have to learn how to communicate that authentically to others. Mm -hmm. This is not quite on point. Well, two things. One, just this morning, I had a great conversation with somebody that I also met on LinkedIn, and he and I had a conversation today. And we'll be. We'll, I'm going to coach him, and that was totally. I and I would definitely say that would be limbic resonance, the way that we found each other on LinkedIn and just how we're connected. But well, I was laughing because when you were saying something about how how it is that we take in information, 
and where sometimes where things are aligned or disconnected, I just have to quickly tell the story. It's so funny. Last weekend, I was out running here at White Rock Lake in Dallas, and I ran my nine and a half miles around White Rock Lake. I'm walking down, cooling down. Um, I'm in my my shorts and my 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 running suit here or running bra, and out of the corner of my eye, I see this bicyclist coming up, and I and I hear, "Hey, are you single? I want to get a girlfriend for my for my friend over here." At which point, I turn my head. And I face the, the gentleman that's talking to me. Each of us now have new data registered as we each face the other. And he says, oh. And I start laughing because I immediately recognize the disconnect. And I say, how old are you, darling? And he goes, 25. And I said, how old is your friend? 25. And I said, well, that was a long time ago for me. And he goes, well, you should, you should consider it a compliment. And you turned off and he wrote off. But the funny thing was, right, so we only got that new data when we each looked at each other. And it was just so funny. So... It just that's what what I was laughing at when you talked about that limbic resonance sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, we're doing we're doing a lot of things that we don't know we're doing, right? <laughs> it's crazy, you know. It's just crazy. Um, all right, so let's keep moving here. Um, we started to talk about this before, but I, I appreciate this, and it's important, especially for people that are listening from the vantage point of leadership and wanting to build that fulfillment in their employees or give them access to it. And it goes back to that idea of, of making meaning possible. So there's all these organizations that are doing so much good work trying to make their culture a place people want to come to, but you distinguish that organizations can't solve the need for meaning for their employees, not in the sense of providing meaning anyway, but they can make it available through their culture, and doing so, as you say, is monumentally important to the actualization and activation of individual potentials. Say more, and how can organizations do that? Yeah, so, so helping people grow personally is probably one of the most important things that that organizations can do. And I think it comes down to you have to open up a little bit and stop trying to hoard your talent and realize that your your company is is a living network, is a living being that people are going to come in and out of over time and and the work should be able to stand for itself, right? And if you if you can categorize it that way and then kind of put that on on you know, off to the side and say, hey, we've got a job to do. We've got to go generate profits and do these things. But it's a network with people coming in. How can I develop people? So personal development doesn't actually happen if I, as a manager, am sitting there and saying, well, Elise needs to learn this, you know, as a leadership approach, if Elise has no interest in learning that as a, you know, right. And so you, you, you're like, oh gosh, I got to take this this class on this this new leadership model that you know somebody read a book on and it's great, but I have no interest in doing that. Right? Mm-hmm. That's not actually personal development, and that stuff isn't going to stick. Right? And so one of the things that I've been doing with with organizations is actually uh, running workshops. And what we do is we use the content of the person. So, for example, if if Elise comes into the workshop, it's like we use your content first to help you understand and and give you the tools to analyze yourself. And then to turn around and how to channel that into what the organization is doing, right? So if you don't get clear on you, you're going to constantly uh, uh, confabulate, you know, or, or contort, you know, where you, where do you stop and the company ends and all this other stuff, right? So what organizations can do better, I think, is actually supply people tools to help them help themselves and 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 go with the understanding that, hey, they're at your company for a reason already that largely they don't even understand. And, right. and have that faith and confidence that what you're, if you're, what you're doing in the marketplace is important and, and you, you, know, you yourself and your leaders care about it, your people 
will come into the company and, and, and maybe some ancillary skill that they think they're developing on individuation ends up turning into, wow, I can really channel this towards a, a job. I've got a great story about that, by the way, if you want to hear it. Um, it, it go for it. Yeah. I, I, um, so, so when I was essence, I, I went in an essence mind organizations for a while, which is really trying to help them uncover their meaning language within the organization. And in doing that, I started to uncover all the models and, you know, uh, conflicts they had within, within even their structure. But what was important, I came across this one lady once and she was working in a hospice company and I was interviewing her and she said, you, you don't understand. My life has no meaning at all. And I said, what do you mean? And she goes, well, you know, a little over a year ago, my, my oldest son died. And then a few months later, my husband died. Um, my oldest son was unexpected. My, then my husband died. And she goes, and I've just been, it, my life doesn't have any meaning anymore. I really don't care. And I said, now you're working in the, you're, you're, she goes, I don't work on the front line. I don't do the hospice thing. And the company was by the name, had the name Crossroads. And what they have is a model that's called even more care. And what even more care means is that the people, the nurses and the aides are, are attending deaths, time of death, more often than other hospices. And so they've set their call schedule up to make sure that families have what they need instead of like a lot of hospice models, which are just like, you know, call me when they pass or we'll try to be there or whatever. They have a model actually set up to do that. Well, she was telling me that after her husband and her son died, they both had a ton of medical debt and she was going to go bankrupt. But what she did is she got so frustrated with it that she packaged it up and just shared everything with the hospitals and with the doctors. And lo and behold, they relieved the debt and some of them worked out things with her. And so she was like, you know, it freed me. And I said, no, you mentioned that in the course of your job, one of the things that you're doing is you're you're helping people do or making sure that that Crossroads gets paid. You're an accounts receivable, and, and she goes, yeah. And I said, you also mentioned that you had some pretty involved conversations with people, and she goes, yeah. And I go, are you by chance sharing any of this with them? And she goes, yeah. I, I try to help them through it by sharing what I did. And I go, well, it's interesting because you're providing even more care even though you're in a role that might not be directly related to that even more care model, you're still caring for that customer, that family, that, that patient's family that well after the patient has gone and they, they still have struggles and legal bills and things like that. Wow. She goes, I didn't see that. And so a week later, she, 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 I came back out to St. Louis and I was, I was chatting with her and she said, you know what? Uh, I have a whole, I, I understand what meaning at work is now. And she goes, I've, I've, I've been doing this. I've, been, I've actually plugged into the job a little bit more. I, I have a sense of purpose about it. And she goes, and, and I'm more fulfilled than I ever have been. She goes, thank you for, for doing that. And so that's, that's a limited example of how powerful just helping people realize that they can channel what they're doing. They might not be cognizant of doing it into, into the organization. Beautiful example, Danny, and I do exactly that kind of work with my clients too. And it's also it, it, you're speaking of really kind of what logotherapy does, which is helping people get access to their meaning systems too. But leaders, that is what you can do for your people too, helping them understand just the difference they're making to the lives of the people. Sometimes they do need to have it articulated, like Danny just did, and that is. You do something like that for your people, and you change their lives, just like Danny changed this, this woman's life. And so, that is a great tip right there, Danny. We're getting so close to being out of time. I want to, I want to ask you two more things really quick. So, um, I want to talk about this really interesting idea that you talked about that came from Maslow. And the reason I want to do this, Danny, is that 
so much of what I'm trying to do in the world, and probably you too, is I'm trying to help people discover or get access to their passion and their purpose and then unleash it, bring it into the world because we need it terribly. The difference that that actually makes. And so what I found so compelling is, you write, quote, Maslow believed the right kind of culture could catalyze self-actualization at mass scale and address many of society's ills. I agree. Such a culture is what we are working toward by identifying a process for meaning. In such a company, an organizing principle for getting things done isn't adherence to a cultural norm, but limbic resonance, which we talked about before. Would you say a little bit more about how limbic resonance is so important in terms of that unifying aspect and how it cascades? I, I think, you know, what's interesting is is clearly when you trust those around you, you can be more open, you can be more of yourself. Um, and I think that that's the way people feel. Um I don't know if it's practical or pragmatic to, to, to expect that um, be, because it's just the way that organizations are, are you know, constructed and, and where humanity's at at this point. Um, the mass scale thing, Maslow didn't know. It was just a belief. Um, I don't know that it's possible. It's just a, it's, it's a, it's a thought in terms of we have herd immunity, right? Which is a common term right now, um, with, with COVID, but it's like, if everybody starts attending to their own journey and evolving their particular models of work or whatever that is, um, it makes sense that that's going to help others feel more comfortable attending to those things and, and, and calling out what they think is, is them and, their contributions and who they are and, and those types of things. And so um, it's a concept out there, but it's, it, I think that it's, it, it might be, might be possible. Well, I think it is in, in the sense that it, what's, what I believe is happening is that we're developing an elevated consciousness by doing the kind of work that we're doing here. Hopefully we'll become more self-aware and we're elevating our consciousness. And therefore, as we continue to elevate that consciousness, we can thread a greater mass of people together and we head toward mass scale. How long does that take? I don't know, but I'm certainly on that journey to help that happen. Um, all right. Cross your fingers. One, yeah, I'll just keep getting up and working. <laughs> um, so, so the last thing, really, really quick, and maybe about a minute or so, Danny, I love this organizational dynamic lingua franca that you have developed. That's, mm-hmm. This is the most fresh concept. Quickly, what is it? Why is it important? So it's, it's, the, it's the meaning language of an organization. We have four different languages. We have like a scientific language, which is data you know, facts, things like that. We've got regulatory language, which is responsibilities and roles. We've got business language, which is marketing and sales, right? And then we have a meaning language and everybody has their own meaning vernacular. But when we're talking about concepts within the organization, a lot of times we don't know. And this happened when I was interviewing people at Baptist San Antonio Hospital, five different locations. What happened was different people at different edges of the city were talking about the organization the same way, but they weren't using the same words. And so to be able to tie those, that, that cognition to, oh, these are two, these concepts are going the same way, but you guys are talking about them completely differently. How do we meld that together? Now, that would be the organizational dynamic lingua franca where it's like, oh, yeah, what, what Elise said is really important. And I, I, what she said, she said it better than I did, right? It described that concept. And so what happens is, is with organizational meaning, the more that we actually can tie in and understand it, the more that we can go, Elise is going to learn what I have to say about the organization on its journey, and I'm going to learn from Elise her perspective on it and the fact that we're all talking. You know that mm-hmm. parable of the eight blind men and the elephant? No, but we right? probably don't, we don't have time for it, though, but uh, hang on all to right. that. Um, we're out of time. Yeah, yeah. 
I got to tell you, thank you so much for letting me find you. Lasso, you come on the show. Let me uh, totally digest your book. It was fantastic. Thank you for joining us. Beautiful. It was enjoyable. Thanks, Elise. You're welcome. Listeners and viewers, if you want to learn more about Danny, his work or his book, go start by visiting his website. It's pathways.io. Last week, if you missed the live show, you can catch a recorded podcast or on YouTube. We were on the air with Hugh Baloub talking about his work developing transformational leadership in nonprofit and church organizations. And he also shared, like Danny did somewhat, how his decades of experience conducting symphonies inform his own leadership and practice developing it in others. Fascinating. Next week, we've got a special show for you. On air with us will be Sherry Elliott Eurer talking about her bold new venture as the Zensual Gal. Her newfound purpose to bring intimacy back in the lives of couples promises to be a juicy conversation. This is not just for, 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 for show, but this is true transformation and coming into your being. See you there. Remember that work is at least a third of our lives, and Danny says 57%, so let's work on purpose. We hope you've enjoyed this week's program. Be sure to tune in to Working on Purpose, featuring your host, Dr. Elise Cortez, each week on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Together, we'll create a world where business operates conscientiously, leadership inspires impassioned performance, and employees are fulfilled in work that provides the meaning and purpose they crave. See you there. Let's work on purpose.